0: Hello, welcome to Science Shambles, producer Trent here welcoming you to another episode with Helen Chersky still in the host chair. We recorded this episode uh, on location at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich when our guests were Katie Mack, who was over in the UK briefly uh, doing some research for her new book, which uh, you'll find out more details about in the podcast and Emily Drabeck-Monda from the Royal Observatory itself. A quick reminder to support the podcast and everything we do at the Cosmic Shambles Network. You can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles and get lots of goodies on there for as little as a dollar a month. Or you can just share the podcast on social media. Five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts and everywhere really help us out. Or pop along to one of our live events... Uh, If you're going to be at the Latitude or the Blue Dot Festival, we will be there this coming weekend doing two Science Shambles podcasts live amongst a whole lot of other shows as well. We're going to be doing a mini Space Shambles on the Saturday uh, 50th anniversary of the moon landing at Latitude with Robin uh, and Susie Imba and Helen Sharman We'll be doing the play Signals. We'll be doing Science Shambles about Signals from Space after that with Robin and Helen and Kevin Fong and Susie Imber as well. We'll be there with Chris Lintot and Steve Pretty. Robin's doing a solo show. Then we'll be at Blue Dot on the Sunday with the Signals play again. And then another Science Shambles podcast after that with Helen and Susie and Chris and Matthew Cobb. So if you're at either of those festivals, make sure to pop down and see one of our shows and say hello. And now on to this week's episode.
1: Uh, Welcome to the Science Shambles podcast. I'm Helen Cheresky, still standing in for Robin Ince, who will be back in London soon with his live show. Or we've been in London. Not quite sure. He will be back at some point, uh, but I'm still here for now. And I'm... Outside the studio, which is very nice, I'm at the Royal Observatory at Greenwich, which is a fabulous place to be. And I'm here with two brilliant guests on the podcast. We've got Katie Mack, who is a who is a familiar to the Cosmic Shambles audience uh, and tweets a lot about astrono- astronomy and cosmology. Uh, and we've also got Emily Drabock-Maunder, who is one of the public astronomers here at the Royal Observatory and spends her time sharing astronomy with everyone, but you were also an astronomer yourself. Tell us a little bit about your research before you came here.
2: Yeah, of course. So what I mainly studied was how stars and planets form. And in order to do that, I uh, used telescopes that uh, looked at light that we can't see with our own eyes. So I mainly used infrared and radio telescopes to do that. And so yeah, I wanted to better understand nebulae, these regions where stars are forming, but also how planets begin forming around stars.
1: And then you've moved from that,
2: so now you're you're still doing a bit of research while you're here at Greenwich as well. Yes, I am. I'm still trying to, to finish off some of the projects that I kind of left when I did move into more of a public astronomy role. It is one of
1: those things about science, is that You've never really finished.
2: Mm, no, there's exactly. It's like the projects yeah. kind of
1: carry on. They're interesting, and so you sort of keep going, and, and then there's lots of them. Um, Katie, what are you? what's your research about at the moment?
3: I do a bunch of different things. Uh, so I do theoretical cosmology, cosmology. Um, Uh, cosmology being the study of the entire universe from beginning to end from the largest to smallest scales Uh, so pretty much everything you can think of as long as it's uh, you know sort of in the cosmos big and important (laughs) in some way yes Um, but the specific areas I focus on I'm interested in uh, dark matter so whatever is the invisible stuff that holds galaxies together and is responsible for most of the sort of organization and structure in the universe And uh, also the early universe. So the Big Bang, um, how everything got started, how galaxies formed. Um, And lately, I've had a a real interest in the end of the universe. I'm interested in kind of the other side of things. And
1: And that's because you're writing a book on it. You're allowed to say so. Yes, (laughs) yes. Tell us about that. Um,
3: Yeah, uh, so I'm writing a book about um, different ways the universe might end and what they would look like. Um, The working title at the moment is The End of Everything. And uh, it should be out sometime next year. And and the idea behind the book is to go through uh, five different possibilities for how the universe might end, what you would see if you were there when that was happening, um, how (laughs) it might occur. <laughs> um, in some cases, you really don't. But
1: uh, can, you, can you give some of the five away? What? what sure, sure, sure. Here? Um, well, Do you I get to vote
3: <laughs> I, if you'd like. It might not help, but um, <laughs> uh, so one of the first uh, one I go through is the big crunch, which is uh, an idea that's not favored anymore. But it's the idea that uh, you know right now the universe is expanding, but at some point that expansion could reverse and everything could come back together, which would be very bad uh, for those of us inside the universe who don't want to be cuddling up to the next
1: uh, galaxies and stars. Um, you to make that sound, so let's go and cuddle another galaxy.
3: <laughs> I like that. It does get really yeah. gruesome, though. The Big Crunch oh. is a fun one because... Um, because the thing that uh, the thing that you think is going to happen is you think that the galaxies are going to collide with each other and that's going to be a disaster. Galaxies colliding doesn't necessarily mean disaster for the things inside those galaxies. They're usually the stars don't actually hit each other; they kind of miss, and you mess up the galaxy shape, but the planets and stars are mostly okay. Um, But the thing that kills you when the big crunch happens is that not only are you compressing all of the stars and galaxies and everything, you're compressing all of the radiation that was ever produced by stars and galaxies over the course of of cosmic history. And so everything gets very, very hot. And so you end (laughs) up basically igniting the surfaces of stars uh Ooh. from just the the cosmic radiation which is really cool
1: um so... that's one we of getting because i mean that's it that's a fascinating idea just yeah. because you know we think about things in the universe giving off light and we no one mm. questions it, it just goes mm. yeah, somewhere. yeah 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 you know, just disperses light yeah if we send out radio signals yeah that just disappears into the yeah, universe yeah. Yeah. Um, and off it goes yeah it's not supposed to come back no
3: no no <laughs> and so yeah so if the, if the expansion reversed it would i mean uh, you know this the light from all of the other stars would start to get closer and closer together uh so that would be very neat so that's one of the chapters and then uh i go through a few other possibilities including the heat death which is the one that's most likely at the moment based on what we know which is where the universe just kind of keeps expanding and expanding faster and faster and everything gets farther and farther apart and no new stars are formed after a while, and the stars start to die out, and the black holes start to evaporate, and everything just ends cold and so dark So this is this is the one
1: that's not very good to think about no. if you're a bit depressed anyway. Yeah, that's that the one. That one's always a bit of a downer.
3: Help. That's that's a yeah. It's it's. You know, I, I give talks about these things and it's, it's always hard to, to end that one on a, on a high note, you know, because it's like, yeah, and then we all we all end in the cold darkness alone. You know? <laughs> like,
1: it's, it's that fun. thing about dying with a, bang or a banger or whimper, right? yeah, it's, yeah, it's
3: yeah, a or Yeah, 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 exactly. Um,
2: but, then, but then, you know, what's yeah. the time scale for all of this, though? Because I'm assuming this is going to be billions of years <laughs> yes. in the future. So yeah, we shouldn't yeah. be too depressed. About well, the,
3: it. the heat death uh, is way, you know, very, very far away. I mean, you, you, you have to get exponentials in your exponentials to get to the number of years where, you know, you get to the point where really nothing else is happening anymore. Um, but uh, but the interesting thing about the heat death is uh, you can you could say that the the heat death is here, but it's unevenly distributed because there are parts of the universe that are very low density, you know, cosmic voids where already you know stars are star formation is. Falling apart, you know, slowing down, and and there's no new things forming, and so things are just starting to get decay.
1: So the universe is already regions. rotting. Is that what you're saying?
3: Well, yeah. And here's here's a don't a, sound
1: so happy. No,
3: <laughs> no, no, no. Here's here. This will blow your mind. Um, if you work out the history of star formation over the course of the universe, you can figure out that you know it peaked um, uh, several billion years ago, and the rate of star formation has been decreasing, and you can actually work out that that Of all the stars that ever were or ever will be, 95% have already been formed. So from now to the end of time, we're only looking at the the, the last five percent of stars.
1: So I, I wasn't worried about the heat death of the universe until you said that, and now it does sound like we're a bit closer to the end. Oh, there's different yeah. ways of counting. I guess. Yeah,
3: yeah, there, yeah. I mean, in terms of time, you know, we're nowhere near the end. But but in terms of uh, you exactly. know what's going to actually happen in the universe, uh, there, you know, it's all the all the fun exciting stuff was was you have know, your
1: fun now, a people, while ago, because <laughs> <laughs> the best fun might already have happened. Yeah, but the universe. Uh, scales
3: yeah but then there are there are other cool possibilities uh, that i talk about in the book uh where one where um you know the expansion goes faster and faster and faster in such a way that it starts ripping galaxies apart which is which is a fun idea uh it's called the big rip uh, there's one where you end up with a uh, you have a sort of bubble of quantum death that forms in one part of the universe that's a sci-fi movie it. <laughs> no it's called vacuum <laughs> decay uh, people are working on this uh in you know real physical models and so it's uh, there are lots of there are lots of cool cool ways to go. Uh, none of them end well. Um, it is it is the destruction no of the universe. Yeah. yeah. Of, so
1: the the one thing that's consistent in these physical models is that there there, there will is be an, an end, end of some kind.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Uh, there are ways where you know some kind of space can continue forever in one way or another for certain uh, you know for certain theories. Um, but the kind of existence we have right now is not. Um, you know, is not going to last forever. Things are changing constantly in the universe. And, and so there will always be a point in the future where something you know, really destructive happens to everything that we see in the sky right now, which is kind of interesting.
1: But this does tend to be, I mean, we were talking before, Emily, uh, before we came up here about the public's reaction to these things. And you were saying mm. it's actually quite common that people ask about this. That Well, you know, this idea, we were talking about kids saying, oh, you know, when's the universe going to end?
2: Yes, <laughs> so children especially always want to know questions like, um what happens at the end of the universe what happens mm. when you fall in a black hole what happens when the sun dies so it's all it always seems a bit morbid but I think their curiosity really shows through yeah um, so it's definitely something that that really interests people yeah. so you don't you don't worry them very they're, 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 you don't like you no, no, them nightmares really. yeah so I mean we're always honest with them and and we always follow up any uh, answers that we we give kind of you know this is unlikely to happen you know it's very unlikely we're going to fall into a black hole mm-hmm. um or um you know the sun will will eventually run out of fuel but that won't be for really another four and a half billion years it's only halfway through its life um but yeah they never really seem very worried in the first place anyway so mm-hmm. so yeah it's just something that i think is really fascinating to a lot of people
1: and what kind of reactions are you getting from people Katie, As you go around because you're you're here in in the uk yeah. asking people asking astronomers and cosmologists mm-hmm. what they think about all of this but yeah, yeah yeah what what how do people feel
3: about all of this? Uh, well, I mean, in terms of like... Uh, either. Either way. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, when I talk to uh, popular audiences, you know, uh, when I give talks or whatever, um, a lot of people find the heat death a very depressing idea. I think that's <laughs> fairly universal. Um, uh, and occasionally people will, will uh, appear to be very upset by some of these concepts. You know, I, I've, I've received emails from people very, very worried about vacuum decay. This is the one where the bubble of death... Spreads that, the universe. Is that what
1: you call? You can't really blame them for being worried,
3: can you? <laughs> I mean, it, it's one of these things. It's a very low probability event, and, and probably, like, probably there's something wrong with uh, our understanding of the physics in such that in such a way that it won't actually happen. But. It is something that you know people do calculations about, and so occasionally somebody will say, "Oh, you know, now I'm worried that you know I'm going to blink out of existence at any moment." Um, and so talking people down from that is, uh, is sometimes <laughs> challenging. And I've had I've had people email me many times saying, "Like, no, I'm still scared. Like, you have to you have to convince me," and, and that that can be that can be difficult. But um,
1: it sounds like you're making work for a, a new kind of special cosmic psychologist. <laughs> you know, to deal with the because yeah. there are, I mean people do they're very aware yeah. of of the much more aware of their mental state now which is a good mm. thing yeah, yeah but then it's another thing to worry about isn't yeah it? yeah and,
3: and and i try to um you know i try to to put it in a different context you know i mean for me i think uh thinking about ultimate destruction uh is mostly pretty healthy in the sense that like it it really puts uh, in perspective the small uh, annoyances of daily life you know um well at some point you know <laughs> everything's going to end you know <laughs> and you can kind of you can kind of think about like if the universe really is finite in time um you know then then at some level you know we should uh, make the most of what we have and 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 so on and so i i try to i try to sort of encourage that perspective instead um but, uh, yeah, people take it differently. Some people see it as very freeing, the idea that the universe might end. Some people find it very upsetting. Some people just don't believe in anything. Mean, it's kind because of like a Rorschach test, idea. isn't
1: it? That you yeah. look at the thing and everyone sees something depending yeah. on... Yeah, their yeah,
3: memory. yeah. I've, I've had, yeah, I've, I've had this idea that I want to, at some point, um, kind of go around and, and interview people and just say, you know, what does the end of the universe mean to you? And, and you know, <laughs> just try and, try and uh, get different perspectives on it. Because it really is... It really is fascinating how how people respond, but, and even astronomers. You know, I, I was talking to um, I was talking to someone um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Freeman Dyson, who's famous for thinking about Dyson spheres, which is this idea that you encase a star uh, and capture all its energy, and you can create some kind of uh, this civilization. And he's an in, also. In I mean, that.
1: he's had he's yeah. done
3: a lot of work in a lot oh, he's of done, yeah, really yeah mathematics person. and and physics and everything, and he. He wrote uh, some papers in the 1970s about the end of the universe and, and a, a way to try to um, live as long as possible in an expanding universe. And, and maybe, you know, maybe if you slow down your, your computing enough, then, then you get to sort of formally infinite uh, lifespan. But it doesn't work in a universe that's expanding in the way that ours is now. Um, and so I was talking to him about it and he was actually, you know, kind of bummed about the idea that, that, you know, you, you can't actually live forever because he thought he found the, the, um, he thought he found the trick. Yeah, Yeah. 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 And, and, um, and so, you know, he's written about, um, you know, he wrote about that. And, and when he was writing that paper uh, at the time, people thought maybe the big crunch was going to be our fate. And he's, he said he, d- he didn't want to write about that because it made him feel claustrophobic. So, you know, even, even people <laughs> who are working in this field, we do have Which totally, of feelings about emotion stuff. is in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and um, Emily, and you're, you know, you're talking to the public all the time. You're doing lots of different things here and interacting with lots of different groups. Do they are they already committed astronomers if they come to the Royal Observatory at Greenwich, do they come as keen being astronomers or do people just kind of feel that, you know, it's an interesting thing to come and have a look at?
2: I think most people have a vague interest in astronomy, um, but they want to know more about it. And so in general, I think what people really want to see are images of Mm. uh, the cosmos, really. Mm. Um, And so that's one of the things we really do is show a lot of images uh, that telescopes have taken and then really explain what's going on. Um, You know, some images of space are incredibly beautiful as well. Mm. So, I mean, these beautiful rainbow colored nebulae, for example, where stars are being born, but even some nebulae, which don't show stars being born, they actually show stars that are dying. Those are just as beautiful as well. Mm -hmm. And so kind of putting all of those images into context and really explaining the science behind them um, and just really connecting those images to people, I think... Um, that's really the the important thing to do there. And it's a kind of a
1: sort of reassurance that the cosmos is there? Because we, you know, we're sitting here uh, in the observatory in one of the upper bits that used to be an observatory, and it's a very grey day outside. Yes. And probably yeah. you know, we're in we're in South London, so there's probably air pollution. If there wasn't, and people don't actually see the cosmos in the UK very often. Is that part of the reassurance of looking at pictures? It's definitely there. Yeah,
2: exactly. And I think a lot of people have incredibly light polluted skies now. So we just have so many artificial lights streetlights, for example, it makes it really difficult to see the stars. And especially from London, we're only seeing a couple of hundred stars over the course of the night. Whereas if you go out into the countryside, really, you can see more along the lines of several thousand stars, you can see even the the Milky Way, you're looking towards the centre of the Milky Way. Um, And a lot of people have never seen that before. And so being able to come look at pictures from telescopes, um, and really interact with that yeah it, it's incredibly important and inspiring for a lot of people
1: I think it's a bit of education helps I mean I remember I grew up in Manchester where the light pollution isn't much better and um, I remember doing a science project in Mexico we were working out and sleeping on the beach and uh, I remember one of the first night says that I kind of woke up in the middle of the night and I looked up and went oh that's the Milky Way and I knew I knew because I had seen the pictures I, I read the books yeah but i would never actually seen it and I think had I seen it without knowing what it was, it would have been amazing and interesting. But I already,
2: I was like, that's now, that's it. I know exactly what that is. Yeah, exactly. I've just never seen it. And I had a similar moment, actually, when um, I was in South America and I I was observing on a telescope in Chile. Um, So the Atacama Pathfinder experiment, it's called APEX for short. Um, And I was looking up at the stars. That was the clearest skies I'd ever seen as well. Um, So out in the Atacama Desert. Um, And I looked up and not only saw the Milky Way, but I also was able to see the large and the small Magellanic clouds. And I knew what they were instantly. But again, it was that kind of connection with those two things that that really kind of struck a chord in me. Um, And so even at the observatory, we also still kind of open up some of our historical telescopes, the Great Equatorial Telescope, for example, which it's this 28 inch refracting telescope. It was built in 1893. It is the original telescope that we still have um, kind of in in that building. Um, We open that telescope up and let people look through it. And sometimes it's the first time anyone's ever looked through a telescope before and they might see the planet Mars. And, you know, it's it's seeing that connection again, I think is really quite amazing Um, so that people can actually look through a telescope the first time and actually see something up close. Mm-hmm. It's something. There's something in here that I I sort of worry a lot about
1: with modern science, actually, because uh, many. I mean, so Katie, you're a theoretical astronomer or mm-hmm. cosmologist, so you don't. You're not necessarily doing the nuts and bolts of the observing anymore, and it's the same no. for you know. I still go to sea as, a, as an ocean physicist, but lots of people who study the ocean rely on data from satellites or from remote. You know, we're sort of taking ourselves away from the thing that we're studying and it's almost a theoretic it's almost like a novel you Mm. read about it you sort of know the plot but there's so little contact and yet I think I feel it's becoming more important that as the digital world and
2: the polluted skies (laughs) and whatever sort of push it away people are still trying to claw it back Mm -hmm. yeah exactly so i mean and a lot of telescopes are becoming remote operations yeah um so i mean we don't necessarily go out to telescopes anymore or a lot of telescopes are now launched into space and so there's no way you can actually go up to to observe on a telescope then so i mean i do think it's becoming more important to to kind of go out to telescopes or um even to to have your own telescope that you can operate in your backyard even um, to to look through and and kind of make that connection with the stars,
3: or even just binoculars. Like if you have yeah. if you have decent binoculars, you can see the the moons of Jupiter. You can see Saturn. You know that it that it doesn't look like a circle. It looks like it's got little you know rings on it. Um, uh, that kind of thing is is really powerful. And 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 um, I've also found that uh, just like like the other day there was uh, there was uh, something else that was happening where. Mar- uh, the moon and Jupiter were quite close to each other on the sky. And um, and I was in a taxi coming home from an airport or something. And I, I mentioned to the driver, you know, oh, you know, that's that's Jupiter next to the moon. And um, and when when we stopped and he and he dropped me off, he, he was so excited um, to know that that spot in the sky was Jupiter, and it, and it doesn't look like anything. I mean, it's the moon, which everybody sees all the time, and there's a bright spot next to it, and you can't see anything at all with the naked eye, but he got his phone camera and he took pictures, and I tweeted about it, and a bunch of people told me, like, oh, I went out and saw it, and it was amazing, you know, and, and uh, I think just knowing, like, you know, seeing something in the sky with your eyes and knowing what it is, even if it is, even if it doesn't look spectacular to your eyes, just knowing what it is and having some extra context to it really does change how you think about where you are in the universe and and what's happening around you and that that can be a very powerful moment
1: and we need the reminders don't we because everyone's so busy looking down i mean maybe the world is about the sky is about to fill up with drones and you know electric aircraft with have vertical (laughs) takeoff and all of that so maybe we think it's under threat now maybe it's about to get worse but then maybe people will be looking up you know i but it's funny that you need the reminder to yeah. do it, isn't it? To see these things that... Because it's almost the first thing you learn as a child. You, know, you learn the planets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you never see them. Mm-hmm.
0: Hello. Sorry to interrupt the podcast. I hope you're enjoying it and I hope you'll come back after this brief message. Check out the Cosmic Shambles Network online shop. You can get Book Shambles shirts and tote bags, badge packs, notebooks and all that sort of stuff. There's signed hardback copies of my book. I'm a joke and so are you. And I'll personally dedicate them to you as well if you'd like me to. Everything you buy from the shop goes back into helping us continue to make the podcast and all of the science blogs and other things at Cosmic Shambles. (laughs)
2: And I mean, going back to binoculars and things as well, I mean, another good thing to look at is the Pleiades, so mm. star cluster. Um, and through binoculars, you can see just how many stars are kind of clustered in that area mm. um, of our galaxy. And um, you can also even spot another galaxy Um, in the sky so if you look towards the Andromeda galaxy you can start to see it really with a good pair of binoculars Mm -hmm. you have to go to really again not very light polluted skies but again it's something that you can spot um, Mm -hmm. which is really amazing.
1: And I did you know so I did um, a course recently on celestial navigation and which is really interesting because there's all these tables and it is something that's really started here at Greenwich that the idea that if you want to know where you are on the planet, you need to know your longitude and then there's the story of the clocks um, and how you find out where you are on a planet. But fundamentally, if you look at the process they had to go through, it involved an enormous amount of understanding of spherical geometry and correcting, you know, you have to... You, you work out more or less where you are, and then you, you correct it for all sorts of things, for atmospheric refraction, for, you know, other stuff that's going on in the sky. For, you correct for your latitude. You correct, so you see, you can't do that unless you, un, you have this kind of visceral picture in your head of we're on a spherical planet, mm-hmm. and I'm somewhere, and that means that if the stars are moving that way, I must be on that side. You know, mm-hmm. and yet that picture has been lost with GPS, mm-hmm. And if you hash through you know, I recommend anyone doing this. Um, but if you, it's a lot of tables. It is, you know, the, the people who did the sums. Because people always talk about the clocks mm. and understanding longitude. But somebody had to calculate all the numbers that only applied for one moment in time. Because when you do these corrections, you look at the day, you look at the time, and you go, that number is what I need. And that number will never be of any use to anyone in the history of the world ever again. And yet somebody calculated it before computers, and, and the idea of this kind of... And we just take it for granted. You know, your phone, your, our phones know where we are better than we do. Mm. But it's just easy, isn't it? And we, I feel that like we've really lost... Even mm. navigation now, we don't actually need to look at our surroundings. So. No, exactly.
2: And um, a lot of the... So a, another way for telling longitude as well was to measure kind of where the, the moon is in the sky with respect to certain stars. And so that was also started at the Royal Observatory. It was called the Nautical Almanac. Um, and that's still produced... Um, and so it, it's a part of Her Majesty's Nautical Almanac office, which is now in Taunton, so it's no longer at the Royal Observatory. But you can still look that up online, actually. So that's what
1: we were using. We yes. were sitting there with copies of the Nautical Almanac. Yeah, yeah. And exactly. looking up numbers Yes, and trying to add them up. Yes. And it made, yeah. everyone had to have really tidy handwriting. Like I tell my students to have tidy handwriting, they don't believe me. You cannot calculate where you are on the planet without you know being able to read your handwriting so you can add up the columns. So yeah, so there's a lot of history. So just... Um, very, very briefly, uh, Emily, just give us a, a quick overview of what's actually here at the observatory. Since we're since we're in an observatory, or what used to be an observatory, just very quick, what sort of stuff is here?
2: Yeah, of course. So we have the historical part to the Royal Observatory. And so that consists of Flamsteed House. Um, so that was the house that John Flamsteed uh, lived in. So it was built for him. He was the first astronomer royal, um, which the astronomer royal is kind of the astronomer to the king or queen. It is still a position. Um, so Sir Martin Rees is the current astronomer royal, but John Flamsteed was the first one. Um, so you can kind of go through Flamsteed House and see what that was like, see what the first observing rooms were like as well um, here at the Royal Observatory. Um, we also have some historical telescopes on display, and kind of the explanation for uh, why the observatory was built in the first place. So again, it was this question of longitude and understanding um, kind of uh, how far east or west that we've been able to travel around the world, which was very important for um, navigating ships um, in in the 1600s and and kind of later as well. Um, we also have on display. Um, well, so of course we have the prime meridian here. So the and line And Katie separates... had her picture taken did, yes. standing yes. on the line. Of <laughs> Um, so that's the line that separates the east um, from the west. Um, if we think of the, the lines on the globe, uh, so the meridian lines, or the longitudinal lines rather, are the ones that run north to south. And the prime meridian is kind of where all of those lines are measured from. So it, it separates east and west. And that
1: was a, that's an interesting bit of history there, isn't there? Because this is the Greenwich meridian, but the French were not Entirely happy, yes, yeah, that it it was here. Yeah. So
2: tell me a little bit about the time zones in France and the impact. Ah, So they they did change a little bit actually, but now we've kind of all moved back to to the Greenwich Prime Meridian, and so. But you're right. So the the French Prime Meridian kind of was um, separate. So they just measured east and west kind of from a different point than than what they did. Um, so they were in, in the London. middle and not London. Exactly, yes. And <laughs> um, But I think that's also partly why somebody in
1: the knowledgeable Cosmic Shambles audience might be able to correct me on this. But I think that's why if you go to lo- large parts of France, France is in the time zone it shouldn't be in. Uh, it's it's too far it's too far east for the time it's got.
2: Yes. And I think that dates back to that history. I think it does. Off the top of my head I don't remember, but but yeah, so that that likely does. We'll um, all have to go and, and look that up. Let's yes, just pick yeah. up on
1: that thing of an astronomer because it's one of those things that we associate with being a um you know, it is this part of this history that there was a king and he had his, you know, guru who did that sort of thing but it does it does still exist you mm-hmm. know as you said martin reese yeah. just tell us a little bit about you because you met him before martin Reese's case yes, tell us a little yes. About
3: what he does. uh so he he does a number of things in cosmology um thinking about uh you know the early galaxies and and um the early universe and so on um and he's been thinking a lot actually lately about uh the far future of humanity which is part of why i want to talk to him because uh uh, because he's he's thought about you know where it's all going to go for us in the future. Um, but yeah, he's uh, he does uh, he does a lot of different things, and um, he's he's now a, a lord baron baron of Ludlow as well. He's got uh, got all these titles, and um, I guess he does a lot of um, he does a lot of support for public engagement as well. And he's so always he's, been very very supportive. yeah yeah. So yeah. He, he has he, he wears a lot of different hats, but um, but he's you know still working as a cosmologist in um, at Cambridge University. Um, I remember telling him so years
1: ago on the set of Science Club um, he was one of our interviewees and we were talking about Mars and the possibility of humans going to Mars mm. and you know there's all this stuff about whether you can technically get there, but then there's this issue of cosmic radiation and this idea that just pass through that amount mm-hmm. of empty space outside the Earth's magnetic field. You then bombarded a lot of cosmic rays, and I think at the time the statistics were that you'd have a third chance of arriving with terminal cancer if you arrived. So we talked about this, and, and, we, you know, and, he, and he had said that he would like to go to Mars, and then I'd been the one that had gone to visit the lab that studied the radiation on the mice, whatever it was, and I said, well, you know, it doesn't look like humans are going to be able to go to... They're certainly not coming back. Mm. until someone fixes this problem and so there's a whole interview and it was fine and afterwards and martin reese is lovely he's mm. a very and he lectured me when i was at university on physics uh, and he came up to me the astronomer royal came up to me and he tugged on my sleeve and he said is it true that we can't go to mars because of the cosmic radiation and to my shame i said yes and I think Uh he had said um, at some point earlier in the interview I think he'd hinted that he would take a one way trip to Mars (laughs) just to see what it was like and I'm like just crushed the astronomer world's dreams that's such a like like your even your book isn't that mean (laughs) to people (laughs) (laughs) Um, so so, yes but you know there are these realities that we sort of have to deal Mm. with Um, so who else are you going around talking to Katie what else oh a few different people
3: Um, so I'll be talking with Haranya Pierce at uh, University College London Um, she uh, studied one of of the things that she's interested in is uh the possibility of uh universes colliding with each other so um different sort of bubbles so there might be of more space. of them out there yeah yeah it depends a kind of on how you define universe uh, so, <laughs> so so you know but it's sort of answer yeah but sort of isolated <laughs> bubbles of space that could could collide with ours and, and one of the things she's worked on is is what kinds of signatures you would see in in the sky if that happened and um, how you could figure that out so uh, so I'll be talking to her about that. Um, uh, I'll be talking with um, uh, Pedro Ferreira at uh, Oxford about uh, future uh, how we're thinking about gravity in the future, and because um, that comes into some of these questions about how the universe is going to evolve over time. Um, I'll be talking with uh, Jonathan Pritchard at um, uh, Imperial College because he works on. The square kilometer array and that's Which a, the telescope, the the new, telescope yeah, yeah new radio telescopes that's going to study um, you know the first generation of galaxies and that'll tell us some more about the evolution of the universe and and he's also worked on early universe cosmology and things like that as well and a couple other people i'm just kind of going around getting a few different ideas about how uh how we're going to think about cosmology and how we're going to learn about uh, the future the the future of the of the universe as uh,
1: the next few decades and how, go on, how is it changing your sort of perspective? Because obviously, you have studied the cosmos for your whole mm. professional life. Mm. Are you? St- how are you reacting to, to to asking these big questions? Is it? Ch- is it ch- are you learning more of the stuff you knew, or is it really changing your perspective on what you do?
3: Um, I'm certainly learning more um, about a whole bunch of different topics, and and uh, I'm I'm definitely getting a new perspective on kind of where where things are going in terms of observations in terms of um uh you know the next steps in theoretical work you know i've I've talked to a few people who do um who do work on uh you know where like quantum gravity is going, you know, and or, or how we're going to think about quantum mechanics in, in the next few decades. Because this is or, one of the big debates, is that gravity yeah,
1: and quantum mechanics at yeah, the moment don't talk to each other. They're yeah, entirely yeah. independent physical mathematical structures. Yeah, yeah. And what um, things
3: like the Large Hadron Collider at CERN is going to see, you know, particle experiments and how that's going to change, how we think about the fundamental nature of physics, you know, so so there are a lot, it's, it's been a great excuse to think about these really big questions of like, what really do we know about, you know, physical reality, and how might our picture of that change? And, you know, what does it mean for us, you know, living in this universe, uh, to think about how it's going to evolve in the future. So, so in, in, it has given me ideas for new research projects. So I had a paper uh, recently about vacuum decay, which I might not have worked yeah, on. The I death bubbles about uh, it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. Um, uh, so I've been thinking about that. And, you uh, and you know, so it's it's sort of changed my perspective on that. But it's it's also just been really fascinating uh, to have an excuse to think about um, about big questions, both in terms of the cosmology and physics, but also just in terms of you know, just philosophy. Like, what does it mean if if you know the universe is going to end and you don't have a legacy in some sense in the far, far future? And how do you know how do you conceptualize life in that way? And, and so you can you can kind of go off <laughs> on self examination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it's been a huge amount of fun.
1: And Emily, have you found, like, how is it, because now you're talking to the public more about astronomy and cosmology rather than doing your own. Has that changed your perspective on the subject? Because, again, this has been your professional life, but you're now looking at a completely different aspect of it. I
2: think it's allowed me to kind of appreciate the beauty, really, in astronomy. And so to appreciate more of the aesthetic aspect and kind of make a connection in that way. Um, so instead of trying to, to figure out how stars and planets Form. I'm just trying to explain it to other people and kind of get them to, to be inspired by this process as well. And perhaps they'll go on to, to want to learn more about it or to perhaps be scientists themselves as well. Um, so I think that's kind of how it, it's changed my perspective. On, and it on sounds things. like it sounds
1: like you get to play with all the toys more than you did as a as a research astronomer. Yeah, exactly.
2: So so yeah, I actually use telescopes a lot more than what I did as an observational astrophysicist, <laughs> which is kind of weird thinking of it that way. But I guess because I'm trying to get the public to to observe more, to use telescopes and things, I'm often kind of at telescopes and kind of they're a lot more hands-on as well than radio mm. telescopes are, yeah. um, which. You can't really look through a radio telescope. You know. it's, it's a <laughs> giant dish um, that you have to hook up to a computer and kind of um, make images that way. Um, so the the optical telescopes are a lot more a kind of easier to, to handle. You I you,
3: yeah, go Casey. Do you, do you find uh, when you talk to people about you know the the universe and our place in the cosmos and stuff like that? Do do you find people say that their perspective on uh, on their lives is changing because they're thinking about uh, where they're at or um, you know that. Does it? Do you think that it affects how people see themselves when they get that extra, extra context?
2: Um, it's hard to say, really. So, I mean, mainly people have uh, direct questions about astronomy and things that are mm. kind of going on in the universe. Um, but in general, I mean, I think what really inspires people is when they realize just how many... Um, planets are estimated to be kind Mm -hmm. of even in our galaxy. So a lot of people know a little bit about exoplanets. They hear about their discoveries and and things like that, but they don't realize that 4,000 have been found uh, by telescopes like Kepler. And then they don't realize that, you know, when we look at star formation and when we look at how stars form, it's very likely that when a star forms, a planet starts to form around it. Mm-hmm. So perhaps every star in our galaxy will have at least one exoplanet around mm-hmm. it. So there are 300 billion stars in our galaxy, there's likely 300 billion exoplanets. It's
1: a nice thought that the stars aren't lonely, I think. Yeah. Um, producer Trent has just, in the, since we don't have in this room the magic screen that tells us information from, <laughs> from uh, the people who do have the ability to Google, uh, Trent's just passed me a piece of paper on Royal Museum's Greenwich Notepaper, which is very good, but he, he's <laughs> told me that solar noon is later than clock noon in western france so solar moon solar noon is when the sun is actually overhead Mm. Uh, clock noon is when the clock thinks it ought to be overhead so it's much later in western france and apparently france has 12 different time zones Uh more than any other country in the world so yeah so there is so so the french um time is messed up by this little bit of history Um, But I am sure that the British would have done the same the other way around, had it been the Paris Meridian uh, that was one. Right. So we have pretty much run out of time. So um, thank you very much to both of you, to Emily and to Katie. And the working title of your book is um, good. The cheerful title. When is it going to be out?
3: Uh, It'll be about a year from now. So somewhere in the middle of 2020.
1: OK, so a little while left, but look out for Katie's book. I'm sure there'll be something about it on the Cosmic Shambles network when that time comes. Um, in the meantime, there are lots of Cosmic Shambles events on the go. Have a look at the Cosmic Shambles website for all of the live events and blogs and podcasts and all kinds of things. Do feel free to sponsor us on Patreon uh, if you'd like to support it, support us, because that's what keeps all this going. Um, and yes, I think we're done. So thank, thank you, you very much. much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>
0: Thank you very much for listening. Be sure to follow Katie on Twitter and you will find out all the details about her new book or go to her website, astrokatie.com, which is obviously where she'll be announcing when the book is out and when you can pre-order it and all that sort of stuff. And lots of events at the Royal Observatory as well. Lots of stuff around the moon landing as you would expect lots of moon events and moon exhibitions and stuff there so go to their website rmg.co.uk and you'll find out all about that or those i should say and obviously cosmicshambles.com for all our events and blogs and videos and patreons and everything else and remember as well that book shambles Uh, is back now with Robin and Josie. Our first guest on the new season last week was Wendell Pierce from The Wire and Death of a Salesman. Go and listen to that if you haven't already. That is just about enough from me. Have a great week. We will be back soon. Thank you. Bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.